0: and have also read Psalm 51 responsively, that should clue you in that this morning's sermon will be dealing with repentance uh, and sin. Uh, Larry prayed uh, for... My family will be traveling uh, this Thursday up to Covenant College to take not only Rachel uh, back to Covenant, but taking Molly uh, up there as well and clearing out the nest. So, um, and since I mentioned Rachel, this is kind of interesting. Uh, She's at this hoity toity uh, resort working all summer, living up with her her grandmother on St. Simon's Island. And uh, Adam Sandler and his family came into town, so she's been teaching Adam Sandler's children how to swim. So um, she'll have some stories to, to tell, I'm sure. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 26. The text is verses 1 through 35. However, um, I trim down the uh, sermon by a third, and we'll preach the other half of this in two weeks. So we'll read uh, verses 1 through 6 this morning. Abraham, your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and I will give to your offspring all the lands, and in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. I'm going to read verse 7 as well. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, You kind of know what's coming here. The apple doesn't fall fall far from the tree. She is my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Let's pray together. Father, we look to You and we ask that You would be at work within us. We ask that You would minister the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ afresh and anew to each of our hearts. I pray that You would um, give us grace to turn away from our sins, to turn fully, completely, joyfully to our Lord Jesus Christ. Embrace Him with both arms by faith. We ask in His name. Amen. In one of my earlier churches, we had good friends where the wife struggled tremendously with worry. Uh, she mainly worried about the welfare welfare of her children, um, and worry had had her in its grip. Um, because she was worried about the welfare of her children, she would mop she would sweep and mop her floor after each meal. She was so concerned that her children not, um, would, would not have any germs that they could get sick. And that was just one little area of, of their lives that she could control, that she felt like she could, um, could, could keep them safe. And she hated mopping the floor after each meal, but she so worried for her children that she mops anyway. Uh, In one of my sermons uh, that I was preaching uh, back then, I quoted from John Owen's book on communion with God. And she found the quote to be quite helpful, and so she asked if she could borrow the book. And uh, for those of you who are familiar with John Owen. He thought in Latin but wrote in English 450 years ago or thereabouts, 400 years ago. And and uh, he is almost impossible to understand. You know, If a man writes a book, in my feeling, he ought to write it to be understood. Well, that was not uh, John Owen's concern. He was writing to put truth on paper whether it was un- understood or not. Well, so she wanted to read this book, and uh, I told her, well, it's very difficult. And she was so moved by the quote, she wanted to find out what else he had to say. So I gave her the book. It was an abridgment um, of his larger work on the communion with God. but. But uh, she took it. After several months, she brought it back to me. And it, the book was in tatters. She had written on every page. She apologized for, des- for destroying the book. But you know, it seemed to be helpful to her. Um, and uh, so I didn't really mind. Uh, through these months of reading John Owen, reading the Scriptures, focusing on the Lord... She grew in her trust in God so that she didn't worry nearly as much. Uh, She continued to have the temptation to worry, but she didn't give in to it. In fact, uh, she was able to stop mopping her floors uh, after every meal. Uh, I would imagine there are many here this morning that maybe don't struggle with worry, that have some other particular sin that you struggle with more than others. Uh, Christians throughout the, the centuries have complained of besetting sins. Uh, the, the definition of besetting is to trouble uh, persistently, and so Christians have have complained throughout the centuries of having one sin or another that they that just troubles them persistently Um, maybe it troubles them daily maybe it troubles them moment by moment and these are the sins where you're constantly coming to God and you're crying out God here I am again confessing my worry God here I am again confessing my anger God, here I am again, confessing my gossip. God, here I am again, confessing my lust, my, my love of money, my self-centeredness, my pride, whatever it is that um, that might be your besetting sin. In fact, it may be so powerful in your life that you can't imagine that there's somebody else sitting out here in the in the in the congregation who doesn't struggle with that. Um, but that's but that is true. There are people who have one sin and they struggle with it, and another person may not struggle in that area at all, but they may have some completely other other area in which they, they struggle. When you are gripped by one of these besetting sins it is easy to convince yourself that this is simply your weakness that this is your lot in life and so there's no need to try and get rid of that sin because it will simply be an exercise in futility you've tried and you've tried you've cried and you've cried and that sin persists It is not an exercise in futility. God is greater than the power of any sin. God, God by His grace, can dethrone any sin, no matter how long it has reigned in your life, no matter how well practiced you are at that sin. Isaac, it appears, had a besetting sin that plagued him. That's why I'm bringing up this whole issue. In our passage, we're going to see how God, by His grace, dethroned the sin in Isaac's life, the sin that held a ruling place in Isaac's heart. Before we look at depth in depth at the passage, I want us to identify Isaac's besetting sin. So, look at verse six. Um, I'm sorry, verse 7. I've got verse 6 in my mind this morning. Verse 7. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She is my sister, for he feared to say, My wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. Like father, like son. It feels like we're watching the sequel to a movie, Abraham 3, (laughs) would be the name of this sequel. Um, Abraham struggled with fear. And God, um, by His grace, taught Abraham to trust in the Lord. And I think that Isaac's struggle is with fear. Not because it's mentioned in this one single verse in verse 7 but because Isaac uh, struggles through conflict after conflict here in Genesis 26. Um, he's, He's in these conflicts with the Philistines, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks. And then finally, God appears to Isaac in verse 24. And look at verse 24. Look what God says. He says, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and I will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then immediately after that in verse 26, Isaac built an altar and worshipped the Lord. And you get the sense that throughout this chapter, which might have spanned a few years and that even before this chapter in Isaac's life and he's about 60 years old when we come to this passage that he has struggled consistently persistently with fear so then how does God deal with Isaac's ongoing sin of fear how does God how does God bring Isaac to the place where Isaac trusts in and delights in God Rather than fearing his circumstances, how does God do that? How does God shepherd Isaac along? Well, first of all, we see in verse 1 a clue. First of all, God uncovered Isaac's sin. Um, uncovers or uncovered Isaac's sin. So look at verse 1. There, now there was a famine in the land. And he says, this is different than the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. Let me ask you this who's in charge of the rain? Who causes the the rain to fall on the fields of the just and the unjust? Who causes it not to rain? Who causes it who causes a famine? Or who causes a flood? Well, it's the sovereign God. God is in control. And so this famine that has come into the land is of God's doing. So I think we can conclude that what's happening here is that God is squeezing Isaac like a, like a tube of toothpaste to see what's going to come out. Actually, God knows what's going to come out of Isaac. God knows that Isaac's going to be driven by fear to act just like his father. But what did his father do when there was a famine in the land? Abraham went down to to Egypt. Remember that? Got down there, told Pharaoh, Sarah, well, she's my sister. And so God takes preemptive action. Verse 2. And I'll just go ahead and read verses 2 through 4. Uh, But here's the first preemptive action that God takes. He tells Abraham, I'm sorry, he tells Isaac, don't go down to Egypt. Verse 2. And then he goes and reminds Isaac of his promises. So follow along as I read verses 2 through 5. And the Lord appeared to him, appeared to Isaac, and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and will bless you. For you and your offspring I will give all these lands. I will establish the oath that I swore to to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. I will give your offspring all these lands. In your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So he says, don't go down to Egypt. And then he says, remain here. I will be with you. If God says, I will be with you, then what do you have to fear? Logically speaking, if the, if the sovereign God has given you His promises, He says, I will be with you, I will multiply your descendants, I will give this land to you and to your descendants, then what does Isaac have to fear? Nothing. Does that turn turn Isaac away from his fear? No, because we come to verse 7, and he fears. And he says to Abimelech, she is my sister, even though she was his wife. By reminding Isaac of how Abraham believed God's promise, God is calling Isaac to entrust himself to God. But, as we have just seen, Isaac failed miserably. I've said a lot to this point, so I want to summarize just so we can focus on, on what's really important here. God brought the famine into the land. God repeated the promises to Abraham, uh, that, that were given to Abraham in order that God might expose Isaac's fear. And his lack of trust in God. In fact, uh, to confirm this, who is Moses writing the book of Genesis to? He's writing the book of Genesis to that first century, um, or that first generation of Israelites that came out of Egypt who were not trusting in God. He's teaching them about, about uh, their needs to trust in God. And the first thing that God does in Isaac's life in order to break the cycle of of fear in Isaac's life is He exposes Isaac's sin to Himself. uh, Exposes Isaac's sin of fear to Isaac. Um, God does not want our sins to remain buried and unexposed in our hearts. Uh, Holiness is not simply the absence of sin. We know from God's Word that He multiplies His laws and His commandments in the Bible, not to create a stairway of obedience uh, by which we can make our way up to God, Rather, it's just the opposite. God multiplied His commandments in order to show us that we are sinners. Listen to Romans 5, 20 and 21. The Apostle Paul says, Now the law came to increase the trespasses, but where sin increased grace increased all the more, or abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or listen to Galatians 3.22. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Christ Jesus might be given to those who believe. God... As it says in Romans uh, chapter 11, He is bound all over to disobedience in order that He might be merciful to all. It appears that God squeezes us like a tube of toothpaste in order that our besetting sins would come out and would be exposed to us. It appears that God multiplies our sin that we might understand just how desperately we need the grace of God. See, God lays bare our hearts because He knows what's in there. He knows that we have idols in our hearts that compete with God for supremacy. He knows that those idols, though hidden in the deepest desires of our hearts, ultimately are destructive. And so it's an act of grace that God causes your heart to overflow and to spill out in your life so that you're able to see what God already knows to be there. Now unfortunately, many of us, when God squeezes us, we respond wrongly. When our heart spills out in ugliness, we try and hide it. We try and push it back inside the the, uh, the inner inner part of our life. We try and we try and hide it from everybody else. We even try and hide it from ourselves. We even try and think uh, that we are hiding it from God when we push it back down. Your sin, we think, is out of sight, out of mind, but not to God. He knows. What is in us. We talked about on Friday night, uh, John chapter 2. Jesus would not entrust himself to, to man because he knew what was inside of man. If your sin is out of sight, out of mind, Don't think that you have made progress in the Christian life because you haven't. You haven't made any progress. Because what will happen is that sin is still there and it will spill out again. Now others make the mistake of simply trying to reduce their besetting sin to manageable proportions. Uh, they try and cut back their sin so they'll feel good enough um, that maybe they'll be acceptable to God. Or they'll feel better about their lives, feel like they're able to function. Matthew Henry says, a slight sore neglected may, be pro- may prove to be a fatal consequence. One little infection, one little sore, it seems so small, it can kill you. And so he says, likewise, may a slight sin that is slighted and left unrepented of can be destructive to your spiritual life. Sin left unrepented of has a hardening effect. The conscience becomes dull, the truth is not as easily or eagerly embraced. And J.C. Ryle says, Sin begins like cobwebs that become iron clamps. That besetting sin that feels like an iron clamp on your life. It began as a cobweb that was unrepented of, that you put into practice, that you practiced, and now it has its grip. Sin unrepeated of, or unrepented of leads one away from Christ with disastrous consequences. Listen to the warning in Hebrews uh, three verses twelve through fifteen. The writer says, "Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God." <laughs> but exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Hebrews 6, verses 4-6 through is another warning that the writer gives to believers. He says, "...it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt." For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for those whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. Here in this passage, he's not talking about someone who has gone from being a Christian to a Jehovah's Witness or gone from being a Christian to Hinduism. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about here, someone who has made a profession of faith in Christ, who has walked consistently with that profession, but uh, has uh, fallen away morally and uh, refuses to repent so that they are sinning willfully against God. And you say, I have a besetting sin. Have I reached that point yet? Here's the best way I've heard this passage uh, explained when people ask those types of questions, and that is very simply, if you can repent, you have not reached that point. But if you reach the, the point where your heart is so hard that you cannot repent, then you cannot be saved. And I urge you, repent of your sins. Repent quickly. Repent earnestly. Another mistake Christians make is they get so caught up in being horrified by their sin that the only thing they see is their sin. They they look at their sin and they fail to look at Jesus. I don't know who was, who said it. I can't remember. I, I imagine it was Robert Murray McShane who said, for every glance at your sin, take a thousand looks at Jesus. Um, God is not just about getting rid of your sin. Rather, He is drawing us to trust in Jesus Christ. In fact, you cannot be rid of your sin Without Jesus Christ, this is the reason why God reminded Isaac of His promises to Abraham in verses two through five. Also in verse twenty-four, because all of God's promises have their yes and their amen in Jesus Christ. Those promises that God read, that God gave to, to Isaac, all have their focus in, find their termination in, find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ. I'll go further. If you are delighting in Jesus Christ, if you are trusting in Him, if you are fellowshipping with Him, you will not fall when tempted by your besetting sin. Or if you do stumble, Your repentance will be quick and deep. In other words, if you are committing your besetting sin, if you're committing any sin easily, it means you're out of step with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the vine. You are the branch. Without Him, you can do nothing. With Him, you will bear much fruit so much fruit that it will begin to choke out those sins that beset you. I'm going to end this sermon with two clarifications. And it's probably anticlimactic to end with clarifications, but I didn't know where else to fit them. So I'll put them at the end. So uh, the climactic part is that it's almost over. (laughs) The first clarification is When I said that God multiplies our sin, you did not hear me say that you are free to indulge your besetting sin. That is dangerous. Indulging any sin is dangerous. God means for you to be horrified by your sin, to repent of your sin. He means for you when He squeezes you by various trials for you to see your sin and turn to the Lord Jesus fully and completely. Second clarification. Because I'm talking about God multiplying our sins, you may think that because God multiplies your sins, that He doesn't hate it. But He doesn't hate your sins. God indeed hates all sin. He hates your sin. He hates your besetting sin. If you, th- if you, can, if you have a, a conception of God whereby He doesn't hate your sin, that simply means that you have a small view of God. That you have an unbiblical view of God. The truth is, God multiplies our sin And He endures our sin because He loves us so much. That's why He sent His Son. God so loved the world. God so loved His enemies. God so loved sinners that He multiplied their sins so that they would know that there's no no other place to turn except to Jesus alone. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it is a remarkable thing to think that your soul hates sin, but you loved us so much that you became sin on the cross for us so that in in you we might be the righteousness of God. Father, I suspect. That there are people in the congregation, because of their sin, and because of their long practice with this sin or that sin, that they feel like they are hanging on to you by the by the uh, just by their fingernails. First of all, I pray that you would remind them that the bruised reed you will not break but the smoldering wick you will not snuff out. That it's not their grip on you, but it's your grip on them. For neither death nor life, neither angels nor principalities, height, depth, width, breadth, nothing under all creation is able to separate us from your love for us. God, I pray that you would remind them of that love and then take that love and cause it to be an unstoppable energy within them so that they are more than conquerors and that they would be able to overcome the sin that so easily entangles, that they would not be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, that their hearts would be pliable, would be moldable, would be soft, that they would have what Jeremiah calls hearts of flesh that are easily pricked by the Word of God. At each point, as they repent, remind them of Your great love for us in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray, Amen.